Well, uh, I think we've given way to the divine right of money. I think what we have making our laws and uh, operating our government is a stupefied plutocracy. Support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com, which puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video, and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Lewis Lapham about his long career in journalism and the media landscape today. People feel marooned, and the internet doesn't help that. It makes them more marooned. Here's Debbie Millman. Lewis Lapham is perhaps best known for his time as the editor of Harper's Magazine, where he's now an emeritus editor. But Harper's is just a few chapters in his extraordinary career as a journalist, writer, and provocateur. He started as a newspaper reporter, and he's written about 10 books, give or take. He now edits Lapham's Quarterly, a magazine about history and literature, and hosts his own podcast, The World in Time. One of his most recent issues of Lapham's Quarterly is a history of fake news. And throughout it all, he has remained a keen observer of public life, politics, and America's ruling class. Lewis Lapham, welcome to Design Matters. It is a great pleasure to be at Design Matters, Debbie. Oh, thank you. Lewis, you've described your lifelong love affair with smoking as a childish unwillingness to go along with authority. And your friend, Ralph Nader, once offered to buy a thousand subscriptions to Harper's if you'd quit. How are you doing with your cigarette habit these days? I'm cutting it down. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not smoking as much. And I have a one of those electronic devices. So you're vaping now? From time to time. I go back and forth. How do you compare the experience of vaping versus smoking? Well, they keep making better electronics. And there's one called, I think it's called Juul, which I now use. And it, it, it's, it's close. Lewis, your great-grandfather owned businesses in the leather industry and was a founder of the Texaco Oil Company. Your grandfather was the mayor of San Francisco. Your father was a shipping and banking executive. Coming from a lineage like that, how much pressure was there on you to become someone and to do something great? There was no, no pressure at all. I mean, my 
father suggested that I take up a career in banking and, and was a little bit disappointed in my choosing to become a newspaper reporter and he assured me that there was no future in it. And did he always feel that way? I think he secretly rather liked the notion of my becoming a reporter because he, in his youth, had himself been a newspaper reporter for four years for the San Francisco Examiner after he'd gotten out of Yale in 1931. And I think he'd gone rather reluctantly into the family shipping business. So while he might not have ever admitted it, you think deep down he was proud? I think so. I, I suspect that one of my reasons for becoming a writer or a reporter was to do what my father had never done in a way for him. Oh, wow. Did you ever tell him that? No. There's a lot about the male members of your esteemed family online and in books, but there isn't quite as much about the female side. And I'm wondering what influence your mother, Jane Foster, had on you. She had a very strong influence on me. I don't know much about her family, about her mother and her antecedents. But I do know that in the family arguments, we won't say arguments, let us say discussion. Heated discussions. It usually, you know, around the dinner table, it usually turned out to be that my mother and I were on one side and my brother and my father were on the other side. And my mother had wanted as a young girl to to become an actress. And she had a strong sense of the force of emotion. My father and my brother were strongly allied with reason, both of them very pragmatic and uh, cut to the bottom line. Man, my brother was a wonderfully brilliant man, and more brilliant than I am, but he, he took up a career in law. He went to Georgetown in Washington Law School at night, Work, worked for a senator as a legislative assistant during the day, and then eventually ended up as the chief counsel of the CIA. Do you ever get any inside information None. from him? He, he didn't. He didn't. <laughs> said that a little bit too fast, Lewis. No, no, no. No, no. I, no, he was adamant about that. He didn't trust journalists. And even if a journalist was his brother, that he made no exceptions. He had a very low opinion of journalists. Even with your success and everything you accomplished? Very, very. Journalism was a, a nest of, of lies from my brother's point of view. Interesting how that theme has reemerged in yeah. our society. Yeah. You said that you grew up in a household of books. I did. And at six years old, you asked your mother to read you Moby Dick. I did. And she agreed, but only if you could remember exactly what was happening along the way of her reading this to you. And she agreed. Otherwise, she wanted to read you Peter Rabbit. So Moby Dick versus Peter Rabbit. Was it was it difficult for you to keep up? No, I managed to keep up. And... Because my mother was very serious. If I couldn't remember what had been said in the prior reading, we would go directly to Peter Rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> so I can see I, her threatening you with that. But she did. She she did omit some of the long speculative chapters in which Melville 
who has, a, as you know, a great talent for the metaphysics, goes off into discussions of the whiteness of the whale and so on. She just skipped by those. I'm sure you know this, but Harper's first introduced the American audience to Moby Dick by publishing a portion of it in the magazine in 1851. I did know that. Also, it was the only favorable review that that book received. The, the New York critics in 1851, universally, with the exception of Harper's magazine, reviled and uh, dismissed the novel. How does that cultural shift occur where something could be nearly unanimously defiled and then over years or decades, then suddenly the sentiment changes and we come around to realizing the worth of something that we probably should have seen at the beginning? Well, not necessarily seen at the beginning. I I don't know. It happens. (laughs) Why it happens, I I don't know. Times change, sensibility Books that were very much in fashion in my youth went out of favor and now are beginning to be recovered. I'm thinking particularly of the novels of Joseph Conrad. Conrad was another writer that I was reading before I was 10. And he had been an enormously best-selling writer in America in the 20s. But now I run into younger kids and they tell me they've been reading Nostromo or The Heart of Darkness or Lord Jim. The novel Nostromo is a magnificent novel. I've just gone back to reading it again myself because on my podcast I talked to a young historian Columbia. She says that the, the world that he describes is the world we're now living in. It's the world of globalization. It's the world of taking over of continents and peoples with what Conrad calls the material interest and what we know as the divine right of money. Again, if you, if you read the novel that way, it, it, uh, it makes a lot of sense in time present as well as in time past. You said that you developed an early love for words and couldn't imagine anything more exciting to do than try to put words on paper. Do you still retain that fascination? I I do. Yes, I do. How much writing do you do every day? Probably about three hours, sometimes more than that. Tell us a typical day in the life of Lewis Lapham. You wake up and then what? Well, I I wake up. I, uh, in order to keep my back in in uh, reasonable working order. I, I have to do 20 minutes of exercises every morning. So I do that. I uh, have a cup of coffee. I read the newspaper. Which one? I read the Times, and I also read the New York Post. That surprises me that you read the Post. I would have thought you were going to say the New York Times and the Washington Post, unless that's what you were referring to. And <laughs> no, no, the, no, no. The New York re- Post. <laughs> I was referring to the New York Post, yeah. Because the, uh, there's some columnists on that side of the, the arguments that make a lot of sense to me. and, and uh, Who is, Who's that? Who makes well, there's a, I like to read uh, John Pod Horitz. I also like to read Rich Lowry. And so I'm happy to 
entertain that point of view. The, the, when I was the editor of Harper's Magazine in the, in the 70s, there was, I thought, still something called a marketplace in ideas. And I was careful to publish writers on, on uh, both what was then the rising conservative trend as well as liberal writers. So I, I would have issues in the magazine in which there would appear essays both by Michael Harrington on the left and Irving Kristol on the right. That was still possible in the 70s, but that went out the window in the 1980s. By the 80s, you're, you're either one or the other, and they, they don't speak to each other anymore. I mean, it, that's the era in which you see the rise of talk radio, Rush Limbaugh, and so on. And I can remember in the 80s, I would ask some of the conservative writers to take part in a forum, but they wouldn't do it unless everybody else in the forum was on their same side. What would be the point in that then? Well, you see, that's what happens to the press. You have National Review, you have Nation, and and the uh, writers that appear in one don't appear in the other. And, and, And that gulf opens up in the 80s. And now it's... Uh, it's a it's a delta like we've never seen before. I mean, well, how not, do you how do now you, it's opened up to the entire social media. It's right. a whole different ballgame. And the news media, the television news media, it's it's hard to believe that if you were to watch MSNBC and Fox News on the same night, they're actually describing the same planet. Oh yeah, I've I've done that, and you're right. How do you think we got to this place, and where do you think we're going to be able to go? I don't know. I think that's a, a leading question of, of, our, of our time. I'm seriously. Yeah. I mean, the uh, and I remember having a conversation not too long ago with Michael Bloomberg, who was a supporter of the Quarterly, and he put it exactly the same way you do. Um, how do we have a meaningful politics unless we have the words? to express it. I think that one of the problems, one of the underlying problems is television because even the print media or a lot of the print media today is being made to the standard of television, which is to be very quick and and as little ambiguity as possible. I mean, ambiguity doesn't work on television. And it's often perceived negatively. It's yes. rare that ambiguity is, is perceived positively. Yeah. And you can't even be seen to stop and pause to think. Television is, by definition, entertainment. It has to be to be uh, to survive. And so that happens in the 60s, actually, in this country. That news becomes entertainment. I start out in 1960. I'm a newspaper reporter for the Herald Tribune. I think there were eight daily morning papers in New York. Or not morning. Some of them were afternoons. The trip, of course, went out of business. But then I become a contract writer for the Saturday Evening Post. The Post folded. And then I went to, and I started writing for Life. And Life magazine was the other big... Uh, mass circulation magazine of the, of the 
the time, and that was out of business by the end of the decade. In 1960, if the president of the United States, Kennedy, once he's elected, wants to sit down and talk to the American people, he would either, there was a back page of the Post where the president would sit and talk to Joseph Alsop, and the Life magazine equivalent was Teddy White on the back page of Life. And then, of course, by 1970, a president of the United States would sit down and talk to Brinkley, or you see, would talk to television. It moved to television because television didn't have any distribution costs. The advertising moved away from magazines. I mean, the same kind of problem. It, it, it's just a repetition yeah. today. I mean, of the what's happening to newspapers losing it to the internet. And that's what happened to the big magazines and quite a number of newspapers in the 60s losing it to television. What did you think about the stability of the industry at the time? You were working for two magazines, which while you were working for them closed and then continued on and, and ultimately ended up at Harper's. What, what did you think about the stability of the industry back then? Well, I, I thought it was... Uh, <laughs> Unstable. <laughs> yeah. I, okay, fair enough. <laughs> you know, you know, yeah. I mean, I'd worked for the Herald Tribune. It folded. Before I went to the Post, I went to, with a group of people, we started a new magazine called USA One, which was really a brilliant magazine. It lasted six months. That folded. <laughs> Post folded. Life folded. And, Look folded. I mean, Look, look, look. I, yeah. I do remember look. And, and then by the time I got to Harper's Magazine, it, it too was on the brink of... Well, uh, you, you were arbitrarily thrust into the position of managing editor at Harper's after yeah, yeah. a staff disagreement led yeah. to several people leaving. Yeah. Um, how, did, how hard was it for you to learn on the, on the job to become managing editor so, so quickly? Well, it was, it was, I was very lucky because the editor who went away, and the staff agreement was a man named Willie Morris. His predecessor was a man named John Fisher, Jack Fisher. And Jack Fisher was in retirement living in just outside New Haven. He would come down a couple of days a week and, you know, show me the ropes. He was a marvelous man. I mean, I learned a great deal from him, and I also learned a great deal from the man who had been my editor at the Saturday Evening Post, a man named Otto Friedrich. But so I learned a great deal from him, and I learned a great deal from Fisher. I was very lucky in my teachers. Harper's is now the world's oldest continually published U.S. magazine. Yeah. But around 1980, the family who owned Harper's decided to fold it. That's right. But the MacArthur Foundation jumped in and saved it. Right. In the transition, you were actually let go. I was let go after the transition, yeah. Yeah. What were you thinking at the time? Were you, did you feel betrayed? Did you feel worried? Did you have a sense of doom? Well, yes and no. I mean, the... Uh well, it's a complicated story, a fairly interesting one. I, mean, I become editor of Harper's Magazine. I become managing editor whenever Willie went out the window, and I think that's 1971. Yes. And I'm managing editor, and the Coles family that owned the magazine brought in 
a man named Schneerson, Bob Schneerson, who had been an editor at Time, and he became the editor of Harper's Magazine. And then in 1975, um, Schneerson blotted his copybook, and I, I can't remember why. <laughs> he he leaves, and I become the I become the the editor. But the magazine at that point is in very precarious financial position. I mean, we're losing something, I believe, over a million dollars a year. That's a lot of money in those years. That was a lot I of mean, money. I mean, it's a lot of money today, but yeah. especially so then. Rick MacArthur and the MacArthur family came in. Uh, Rick MacArthur came to New York after the magazine folded, joined the board of the magazine, right. the people that were left, and brought you back, dubbing right. both you and Harper's National Treasures. And I believe today he's the publisher. He is. What did it mean to you at that point that he went to bat for you like that? And what was your working relationship with him like over the course of the last few decades? Oh, it's been very uh, amiable. I mean, I mean, I mean, it must it, be amazing to have somebody that believes in you that much. It was, yeah. <laughs> Rick comes to see me. I'm, I'm in exile in the Pan Am building, and I'm writing occasional columns for the Washington Post. And and he asked me if I would come back, and I said I, I would come back, but uh, only on three conditions. One, that I would have some say in the publishing strategy, what kind of market we were trying for, and two, that I could completely redesign it, and three, that all the members of the board who had fired me would themselves be fired. And to my astonishment, all three conditions were met. He really believed in you. He did. So we had a fine working relationship. What was your strategy for the magazine when you came back? Well, I, I wanted a magazine that uh, published writers that wrote in their, their own voices, in, 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 the, in the first person singular, and narrative whenever possible. I was not keen for policy pieces, you know, and I, I was not interested in what we should do to solve whatever the crisis is. I was interested in people who would go out and write about whatever really excited them and uh, describe what they had learned or seen or felt or, or knew. That would be a a story worth telling. You started new columns and departments, such yeah. as readings and the iconic Harper's yeah. Index, yeah. that eventually took the magazine to its highest circulation and nabbed a dozen national magazine awards. You did a remarkable job bringing new voices into our culture. How did you recognize or, or choose who to feature, to introduce, to support it was just writers I liked. I mean, I mean, I I would, you know, read it, read a manuscript, or and it didn't take me very long. I mean, I didn't have to get more than four or five pages into it before I, I could hear a voice that I thought this is the voice I'd like to hear more from. Who are you most proud of bringing into? I'm proud of all of them. I mean, and I can't remember. Somebody asked me that question the other day, and I couldn't remember them all. But there was Annie Dillard. Barry Lopez, to a certain extent, Walter Karp, to another extent, a little bit, although it was, I was not the first person to publish her, Barbara Ehrenreich, Veronica Gang, um, Matt Power, Donovan Hone, 
Jack had. Uh, it's a long list. Michael Pollan. Yes. Um, Talk about the design. You you have a really iconic cover. Yes. Um, it's something that is highly recognizable, even without the logo on the cover, which is one of the hallmarks of a great design, that you know what it is without even the name on it. What gave you the sense that this would be something that, A, would be interesting to look at from the newsstand, and also something that could have this the longevity that it's had? It's been decades. They've changed the cover recently. You've noticed that. That I have not noticed. Oh, I have. The... <laughs> Yeah, they've, they've fooled around with it. They've changed the balance of, oh, of the... I'm actually devastated at the moment <laughs> thinking this. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I I designed the, the, the magazine with Sam Antiput, whose name I'm sure you know. I mean, yes. he was a great designer of print publication. And we wanted to make a, a cover that... that it spoke for itself. Yeah, it's not fussy. Yeah. Of course, I, with, with the quarterly, I've carried that the next step. But yeah, the, the idea was to have it recognizable on the newsstand from a distance uh, because it didn't look like every other ma- magazine on the newsstand. Talk about the Harper's Index. How did that come to be? That came to be because I, I uh, again, in the years that I'm away from Harper's Magazine, I, you know, 19... 81, 83, I mean, one of the things I was doing was writing a column every other week for the Washington Post, and the I wrote a column like that. I mean, I, I imagined some kind of an index in which one could guess the way of the world. But it, it was the prototype of the, uh, and I wrote it as a column, and, and then when I got back to the magazine, I thought I'd turn it into a feature. Lewis, for, for people that might not be aware of what the Harper's Index is, how would you describe it? Well, it's a collection of uh, facts, but but are numbers. The way I thought of it was the way you drill for oil. I mean, the drill goes down however many thousand feet, and then they bring it up and they look at the casing in which they can see the layers of the, the way the earth is laid on top of itself. Sort of geological slice. Yes, it's a geological slice. And that's what I thought. A geopolitical, social, economic slice, right. There's a continuity in in any Harper's Index where the topics flow from line to line, but they evolve ever so slightly, sometimes a little bit less slightly than others, ultimately resulting in a narrative in and of itself. Right. What were you trying to communicate through that narrative? A sense of proportion or a sense of things are not not necessarily what they seem, dear reader. There are other ways of looking at this, right? And usually the uh, technique was juxtaposition. In other words, there there was one year where the... uh, government's contribution to the National Endowment for the Arts was $150 million. And then somebody at Harper's Magazine calls up and asks, how much does the government spend a year on the Marine Band? And it turned out that it was $150 million. And so you put those things together. 
the index was created that way. It wasn't just passive, waiting for things to fall off the tree. It, you went looking for them. You have to go looking for them. And, and I, you know, during most of the time that I was there, I had an absolutely brilliant editor named Charis Khan. And Charis had a, I let her do it. She understood it. And she was brilliant at it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what was so brilliant about, and, and still is, is the message that it provides without ever actually yeah. referring to any message. No, that's the, right. The absurdity yeah. and, and sort of incredulity yeah, like, of things. Yeah, it's like a small kind of metaphor or haiku. I mean, it, it's it's that kind of a form. Yeah, it's an existential double take. I think yeah. that's the way I would describe it. You retired from Harper's in 2006. Why? Yeah. I wanted to do this, uh, the quarterly. You know, the last five or six years that I was at Harper's, I was reading more and more history and finding that more useful and informative and uh, strengthening than the journalism that I was reading. I mean, the journalism began to sound the same. Some of it was very good, but most of it was not particularly good, or at least I wasn't learning anything from it. But I was learning from my reading of history, and I had always done that. And so this was an idea I very much wanted to do, and I had a chance. The History Book Club asked me in 1999 to do a, a short book on the end of the world because we were coming up on the millennium, and that, so I did that. And, and that was the original design for the quarterly. And then I went to Rick and I said, well, look, let me do this jointly. I mean, let, you know, we have the, you have the Harper's Monthly, and let's have the Harper's Quarterly. But Rick didn't want to do that. Why? He just didn't think it was worth it. He didn't think there'd be enough people who would read it, or uh, it would take too much of my time away from working on the monthly and, and uh, whatever. And they, was it a hard decision to leave Harper's to strike out on your yeah, own? Yeah, yeah, sure. With your own money and your own... I didn't have any money. I don't have any money, but I but I had to raise it. That's what I mean. Yeah. I thought about it for a long time. And then I figured, well, um, whatever I was, I think I was 72, clearly late in the fourth quarter. <laughs> well, if not then, if, when, exa- right? Exactly. So that's what happened. You described the target audience for Lapham's Quarterly as people who wished they had paid more attention in school. Why Why that type of target market? Well, it was a judgment that I made on the basis of my reading of the of letters to the editor. And I've been reading a lot of letters to the editor over the years, and I answered many of them back. And it was, it was a certain type of mind. It were people that had never given up the love of learning and among them, there were people that, who had made some success in the world. I mean, they'd raised a family, they'd paid their taxes, and, and now that they were 45, they had time to read or, or time to pursue what interested them. It is my view, my, my belief, I have no proof, but I think there are a lot of people like that in America. In the 30s and even into the 40s, the bestseller lists used to always be a work of history. You can see some of that beginning to come back when you see the success of books 
written by David McCullough or Stephen Greenblatt or Simon Sharma, and when you can also see the market for historical docudrama on television. Or Hamilton, just yeah, what's happened or with, Hamilton, with yeah. the Broadway show. Or Downton Abbey. And um, there is a real interest in history, I think. And historical consciousness is a thing that the television tends to drive out, and, and also the Internet. I mean, the, the whole miraculous speed of the Internet and, and television, that, that things come and go so quickly that nobody can remember what happened yesterday, much less last week or last year. And so they lose track of their own story. They don't know where they've been or who they are and why they are and or where they might be going. I mean, and I think that's one of the causes for the anxiety and uh, I won't call it depression, but I mean unhappiness um, floating around in society because people feel marooned. And the Internet doesn't help that. It makes them more marooned. I mean, everybody, Why do you think it does that? How do you think it does that? Because everybody, I mean, they, they can make their own little world, right? They only have to see what they want to see. They only have to, again, it's what happens to the media in, in the 80s, constantly looking in the mirror. Well, what I think is, is unfortunate about only reading online is the lack of surprise that you allow for yourself. If you're yeah. looking through a magazine or a newspaper, yeah. you might be looking for a specific column, but en route to that column, you might see things that you didn't expect to see. Yeah. And that is not possible, really, online unless it happens to be next to whatever it is yeah. you're looking at. But it's hard to make a machine do surprise. In a New York Times article about your publication, um, about Lapham's Quarterly, you said the great rush of the electronic media tends to eliminate the past. Yeah. So I want to know how you feel it does that. And I also want to ask you about Lapham's Quarterly. Do you think that it's a reaction to that? No. The, the premise of Lapham's Quarterly is that the past is an enormous resource from which we can learn. And when you think about it, uh, the past is the only thing we can change. How is that? Because that's what we have in our heads. <laughs> so we can only change our perception of the past. We can't really change the activities. No, you can't change the activities. But that is not the only part of the past. In other words, let's say the 19th century, okay? We're, we're going to study the Battle of Waterloo. Napoleon's still there on his horse. King of England is still on his throne. The Indian subcontinent is part of the British Empire. But the light in which Napoleon or the king or India are to be seen changes. History is not what happened 200, 2,000 years ago. It's a story about what happened. It's a memory. Yeah, it's, it's a memory it, of what happened. It's a memory, and, and the, uh, that is the reality. Stephen Greenblatt has a wonderful new book, which I talked to him about on my own podcast a couple of weeks ago. It's called... The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve. And it's the place of the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's entirely fake news. 
I mean, it, <laughs> it is, as so is the Trojan horse. But the place of that story in the imagination of Western Christendom for the last 2,000-odd years is, is real. Napoleon defined history as a fable agreed upon. Mm-hmm. Your connection to the past is in, is in your mind, and, and that's, you know, Virginia Woolf. All the world is mine. And, and, and uh, looked at one way, she's right. But when thinking about... I mean, you can see the monument of, let's go to talk about, you know, what's real and what isn't real, all right? There are certain things you can tell me about, let's say, what? The making of the, the Constitution of the United States. Here are well-educated, well-prosperous gentlemen in Philadelphia in 1787, the thing that they're trying to establish is an oligarchy. Democracy is is something they look upon as as a great evil. Adams says democracy will destroy all civilization. Why did he feel that way? Because it's the mob. It's the voice of the people, the uneducated, illiterate people. Madison feels the same way. Madison thinks of the common man He's afraid of what he calls the turbulent passions of the common man who will indulge in reckless agitation for the equality of income, the abolition of debt, and other wicked projects. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) So what the founders mean by the the, the Constitution is uh, very different from what the Constitution is to us. Well, also the whole notion of we, the people. Right. What people well, and what we, because that is that we and that people aren't the people no. that are in our no. culture today. No, no. No, it's a very limited uh, group. It's people who are educated, people who have some degree of property. People who are white. People who men. are white, men, and... Uh, Women are not part of the me. They're not part of the we, the people I mean, at all. Not, no, they're not part of the we. Neither are the, the black uh, Africans. Neither are people below a certain amount of income uh, who don't hold property. The way that we currently view our history is, is very different from the intent. Well, yeah. I mean, but that was actually changed by 1820. I mean, by 1820, America has already become a country where the rule of law is better understood as the divine right of money. Lincoln's phrasing of it comes out of the Civil War. We, the government of the people, shall shall not perish from the earth. But there's never been a government of the people by the people. It doesn't work. <laughs> so what do you what, what do you think about our, our current political times? What is your view of what's happening in the world right now or in the United States right now? Well, um, I think we've given way to the divine right of money. I think what we have uh, running, making our laws and uh, operating our government is a stupefied plutocracy. I think we're living in a, you know, our economy is based on a constant war. The extent of criminal enterprise in the United States today is truly amazing. I mean, the IRS estimates 400 billion dollars a year of evaded taxes. The thing about the founders 
was that, yes, the Constitution was about property, but they were also men of the 18th century. They had the intellectual idealism and energy of the 18th century Enlightenment. They also were firmly steeped in the moral virtues of the New Testament. I mean, these are... The Declaration of the Independence is, is, is you know, is, is a gift from God. That's, that's their authority. And they set up their oligarchy, Adams and Hamilton, you know, the people in Philadelphia, on the ground, again, I quote Madison, Madison, so that the government shall be conducted by men with most wisdom to discern and most virtue to pursue the common good. And they were men, they had that. They had both the wisdom and the virtue. And they thought of the, their government as the way the Roman Republic thought of it, as, as a, a res publica, or a thing, a living organism that required the constant uh, care and attention on the part of the management. Politics was a noble undertaking. Machiavelli believed that. So did the founders of the American Republic. And the Constitution is made to operate on virtue. Now, you ask me where we are today, and, and what's happened is that those values that were implicit in the, in the Constitution and understood in 1787 have been chased out of the society because the society goes through the last, you know, I don't care where you get it to start, but in the last, say, certainly 60 years, under the pressure of rapid and violent change, social change, sexual revolution, men, women, technology, jobs lost, people deserting the churches, all those kinds of sociological upheaval and as well as economic upheaval with, with the you know, rising boat of wages for the middle and... and uh, no trickle-down economics. No, no trickle-down economics. So, and when you lose value, when all other values seem to fail, the value that you can hold on to or that you seem to hold on to is money, right? Wouldn't it be interesting if as a culture we hoarded time as much as we try to hoard money. Yes, that's right. You told the millions that our problem is how do we make a political discourse out of emojis. Right. I, I love that line. What? Tell me a little bit more about what you meant by that. Well, just, just let's go back to the Constitution. The founders are, they know how to read and write. I mean, uh, the understanding of, of, of law, of, of what we mean by democracy, is, is words. It's a story. And how do you tell a story? Go back to your fable with an emoji. Mm. I mean, you talked we, about we, ambiguity before. I think emojis take a lot of ambiguity out of language. I mean, you know, you read Harper's Magazine back in the 30s and the 20s, all the way back to 1850, and the vocabulary that the writers use, they're not trying to be fancy. They're not trying to be elitist or pretentious. It's just that they have those words in their mind. I mean, our loss of, of language and, and, uh, and vocabulary 
has been substantial since the coming of, of, of television. Also, really, I mean, the great dominant art of, of the 20th century is film. And I don't know if you've ever read a film script, but it's pretty pathetic. You talked a little while ago about being in the fourth quarter. Yes. Your fourth quarter is very busy. You're it is. You're using your time well. Yes. Um, you are publishing a magazine that is, as McSweeney's Internet Tendency surmised it, I think, best. I'll read it. If we sat around lamenting about all the book or magazine ideas we wished we'd thought of, this one would be tops. We should pick huge topics, topics that intimidate us with all their possibilities. We would have said, had we thought of this, and then we'll compile all the best writing on these topics going back to ancient times. Then we'll add some amazing contemporary writers and make it all one huge narrative spanning the breadth of human existence. And we'll do this every three months. <laughs> That's the way they describe the oh, yeah. quarterly. Eggers is a great man. He is. <laughs> so you also have this podcast. Yeah. Tell me what you'd like your legacy to be. Oh, I would like to be um, known for one or two books. I would, probably a book that I have yet to write. Age of Folly was pretty good. Well, I've got it. Timely as well, given timely. that yeah, I, everything I, I, that's happened. I'd like to write a history of my own times which would be in part a story of, of my own life, but not confessional, not my sex life, but what I have seen of, of, of the world and, and uh, what I have learned. I mean, the, uh, you know, Gibbon says that history is nothing but a collection of men's, you know, crimes, right? But it's not. It, it, it's a great storehouse of man's greatness, art, Ideas, government. I mean, uh, I mean that's that's it. I mean, the history is is what men and women have found to be, you know, over their long trek across the frontiers of time. I mean, what they found to be useful, beautiful, or true, and that can be scratching on stone or papyrus, or it can be ship's logs, or it can be coins, it can be buildings, it can be five-act plays and three-part songs. That is your most precious inheritance. Goethe, Goethe, Goethe says it, the, the poet. He says, he who cannot draw on 3,000 years is living hand to mouth. Mm. Lapham's Quarterly is drawing on three thousand years and is living high on the hog. <laughs> Louis Lapham, thank you so much for making our world a bit easier to understand for so long now, and thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you very much, Debbie. Louis Lapham is the editor of Lapham's Quarterly, which you can find in bookstores or at lapham'squarterly.org. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemelman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. 
Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com. 